The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop blogging to complain about Microsoft's name changes and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 176 with guest Michelle LaRue Bustamante, recorded live Thursday, May 11th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, a leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who's too busy in Amsterdam to bother writing my jokes, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin in I hope you're up for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'm here with Richard Campbell, my co-host out on the West Coast and North in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Richard. Hey, man. How you doing? So you're finally drying out a little bit? Things are pretty good here. I mean, not only is it sunny outside, but the basement's all cleaned out. Uh, now we got to start rebuilding, but uh, getting measured for new carpet and working all the details out. So hopefully someday I'll have an office again. Are you still uh, recording from your living room? Uh, the dining room, yes. Dining room, yeah. All right. It's kind of funny. You know, the same time that I go into a fully professional sound booth, you you move to the dining room. It's like we can't get a yeah. break here, you know? No, can't get in order. Well, uh, things have been going well for me. I've been writing some code and tweaking our, uh, you know, our publishing process and all that kind of stuff. I did a, I did a uh, something I mentioned before that was really fun. I, I, I made an, a remote appearance at a, uh, a day of .NET Grok Talks in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I sent him some gear for, uh, you know, connecting the phone to the audio system to the PA system and. And we did some experiments, and, and, and it worked out. And I did this remote presentation. I, I, uh, they connected to my machine and then projected from that machine onto the screen. And I, and I had microphones set up in the audience so I could hear the audience. They could hear me, and we could communicate. And, man, it worked great. That's cool. So we're going to try to do that again some other places. If you have a, uh, a user group you'd like me to appear at, uh, or you'd like somebody else who you've heard on the show to appear at, maybe we can uh, get get things together for you. Just give us a 
Give us a jangle at dot net rocks at franklin's dot net. Hey, we got some mail, Richard. Uh, some good cop, bad cop here. The first one says, yeah. "Hi guys, I think you guys are losing the plot with some of the choices for DNR TV." In my opinion, I've enjoyed a lot of them, but some are pretty lame. This week's with Adam Cogan was rubbish. Is that a blatant advertisement for tools? I think so. It was confusing and all over the shop. I had to turn it off after 10 minutes. And you know, Adam's a fellow Australian, too. This is an Aussie bassing an Aussie here. Well, the thing is, is that he, you know, he didn't, he only saw the first 10 minutes, which was really explaining what the show was about. Most of it came after minute 11. Anyway, he says, what we want to see is coding solutions, something that solves problems for us developers that we encounter from day to day. Stuff like the first shows with Miguel, where you could see code being written. Also, Carl's show on asynchronous programming was great. I like that one. Yeah, he has some good suggestions here. One, get Miguel in to do a show on the data grid or grid view in version 2.0 in VB. Thank you. And show us the gory stuff, <laughs> not just a simple list. We want to see hyperlink columns, button columns, checkbox columns, filtering. Show us how to set it up in a user control and then add the control to a web form. The point of this is to show how you set up binding and the events that you need to call. I've had a lot of problems with uh, this when to call my binding function, and a lot of people are too by the looks of Google search results. Be brave and show the hard stuff. Number two, do a show on Ajax, real-life examples. Number three... More CSLA. Number four, how about a show on the value of web services? Again, real-life example. In summary, don't lose your audience, guys, and don't forget us VB guys. Too much C-sharp lately. Malcolm. So um, just to explain what he's complaining about, uh, make some good suggestions, but the first part of there. Uh, we had a show, this last week's show on DNRTV, which was published a little bit late, but that's because it was a hard edit. This was uh, Adam Cogan you know, from Australia, showing uh, his thoughts about mainstream developer tools for the web. So grids, you know, tree views, all of this kind of stuff. And he went through the, the most popular ones and showed the demos. And then he talked about what he liked about them and what he didn't like about them. And it was completely objective. It wasn't, nobody paid for any advertising space on that show. In fact, he didn't even know we had sponsors. So uh, I thought it was a, a really objective look at, uh, at at some of these tools and, and pretty valuable, frankly, if you're going to be spending money on developer tools. Do you want somebody like Adam's opinion, right? For sure. Yeah. So my advice to you is don't turn it off after 10 minutes. Watch the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> I got an email about the same show. This one from Brian Donahue said, Hi, Carl. Maybe you're still working on it, but it would be nice if you listed some of the tools Adam discusses in this episode so we can see if they were things we've used or interested in, etc. Just an idea. Keep up the great work, Brian. All right. Well, so I uh, guess he liked that show. Yeah, he did. And, and we did. Uh, we were late in getting the links up, too. But the links are up there now. So all the links that uh, Adam mentions in the show are online. But Malcolm's suggestions are good suggestions. I yep. know we're going to do some Ajax stuff. I think Kent Alstad's in line to do some Atlas for you. Yep, absolutely. And uh, Rocky is going to come back and do some more CSLA.net. Uh, the thing about Miguel and the data grid is a great suggestion. We'll talk to him right away. Excellent. So another announcement I just want to make. Uh, you know, last week we had the Code Camp schedule online, but I think it's probably a good idea just every week to mention the code camps that are coming up here. 
So I'm looking at the list here, and the next one is May 13th, Atlanta, Georgia, atlanticodecamp.com. May 20th in Denver, Colorado. May 27th in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, June 3rd in Island, New Jersey. Uh, June 10th in Reston, Virginia, down in Brian Noyes Way. And uh, June 24th through the 25th in San Diego, California. And uh, the next ones on the list are in September. So there you go. If you are near any of those dates, check them out. Go to the Code San Diego, California. San Diego. Don't we know somebody from there? Yes, we do, as a matter of fact. And I believe she is our guest this week. MLB, Michelle LaRue Bestamante is Chief Architect at iDesign Incorporated, Microsoft Regional Director for San Diego, Microsoft MVP for XML Web Services, and a BEA Technical Director. At iDesign, Michelle provides training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services specializing in scalable and secure .NET architecture design, globalization, web services, and interoperability, interoperability with Java platforms. She's a board member for the International Association of Software Architects, a frequent conference presenter, conference chair of SD's web services track, and a frequently published author. She is currently writing a book for O'Reilly on the Windows Communication Foundation, which is currently available online at www.thatindigogirl.com. She is also going to be teaching a class in WCF for Franklin's Net in August. You can reach her at www.idesign.net or her blog at dasblonde.net. Welcome, MLB. Hi, Carl. Hi, Richard. Good to have you back. Good to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while. it's been a while since you've had a WCF show. I'm pretty excited about that. Very. Being the one, you know, to bring it back to life. Well, we 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 really have to call it WCF. Can't we call it Indigo? You know, at the be- when they first changed the name, I had a really hard time with it, and maybe that had to do with the website name and all, you know, that Indigo yeah. Girl. But You're that Indigo I'm Girl. I'm actually feeling very comfortable with WCF now. It's okay. So I think that uh, all the griping that we all made back in the day when they changed the name, most people are over it by now. As long as Don Box doesn't start calling it WICFA, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would be kind of weird. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, so WCF or yeah, I think you got to you kind of got to use the short form Windows Communication Foundation. You can't say that three times really fast. Try it. Richard. So, <laughs> so why why should anyone care about Wicfa? Well, don't do it. No, don't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is just. You know, you're gonna you're gonna start it. That's the thing. You can't no, do that. No, let's just nip it in the bud right here. <laughs> oh, everything you've just heard, we have to deneuralize the whole crowd. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Well, why should anyone care about WCF? Why should anyone care about WCF? So right. Well, okay. So I think that having worked with the platform for better part of a year and a half now, and having, having had many clients in the past year, I think that it's pretty clear that the ease of use and ability to build a distributed system yeah. is just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it is really, really phenomenal. I can't even imagine going back to trying to build an enterprise service backend, or um, I never wanted to do a remoting backend, but, you know, if you do that kind of thing, you'd still be hooked on WCF. 
And in terms of Azimax, the whole idea of building web services, I mean, that's still very elegant and easy to use with ASP.NET, but WCF just makes it feel like a very consistent experience for all of those three categories of, um, you know, server system design in terms of distribution of of components and and business functionality. And really, we're talking about not a lot of code and mostly configuration based, right? Exactly. So it's it's kind of like being an airline pilot in the beginning. You know, you're looking at this dashboard that's just jam packed with switches and knobs, and in the beginning, you're probably a little overwhelmed with which knob do I switch? But that's where the guidance is supposed to help you. So we hope pilots have training, right? So I think we hope that a WCF developer has a bit of training (laughs) and how do I choose the right security configuration and so forth. So you have to understand how to map what we know today as enterprise developers into configuration. Right. And once you figure that out, you're, you're golden. And the rest is really your business functionality. So you're taking a service-oriented approach to building your system like we should have been doing anyways, and many have been doing even with enterprise services in the past, because it really doesn't have to do with web services at all. It's yeah. about componentizing your system into major chunks of functionality. I do think that there may be some confusion between where the relationship sits between uh, WCF and web services. Like, who's the parent of who here? Good, good question. So, so, okay. I think that if you look at WCF as a platform for system distributed system design, okay. How do we distribute functionality? for the past 10, 20 years even, right? We've had many different technologies. We've had, you know, Coraba. We've had COM, D-com. really distributed COM, right? Yeah. We've had... Um, hey, don't forget network DDE. Right? Come on, that I was very DDE. important. I built a system with DDE. I thought it was awesome at the time. Yeah. Mail exactly. slots. Don't forget mail slots. <laughs> okay, I don't go that far back. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, right, and, I, okay. and I draw the line at punch cards. You know, I really never got involved. Yeah, me, in that. me, the you and me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So VisiCalc, you know. I'm proud of that. All right. So, well, anyway, we digress. Yeah. So, so if you think about it, though, it's it's been sort of a problem that we've been solving for years, right? Right. And and it's never been fully solved to the point where people can agree on a mechanism for messaging. Um, it's been proprietary. Corba is proprietary, although right. it 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 does try to be interoperable in the sense that it's IDL-based. It still didn't really get adopted across all platforms. So let's face it, it didn't work, right? It solved a lot of problems. It gave us good ideas. DCOM also solved certain problems, brought in others. And now we're at a point where I think web services, what it did is solve the problem of the serialization of the message in terms of interop. So you could implement it in whatever technology you wanted on the Java, PHP, or .NET side, and at the end of the day, we can still communicate with one another. So, of course, that's huge. You yeah. know? And it's really not even web services. It started with XML, right? Mm-hmm. Just having a schema and agreeing on the schema, getting yeah. on the phone, telling Web service is just a great implementation of that. Right. Yeah. Well, web services just gives us a way to pre- present a, a document or the WSDL document, right, which is the contract. And instead of me having to call the developer and say, look, Here's the schema. I'm going to email it to you. Now, you use that, serialize to that, and I'm going to accept it. And if there's something wrong, we have to talk to each other on the phone right. and figure it out. Whereas with WSDL, you say, here's my WSDL endpoint. Go for it. Have fun. And then you provide them with maybe some documentation on the semantics of the, 
of the service yeah. operations, right? So, so w- WCF then is a is a, a more inclusive uh, API, if you will, for all these different um, means, uh, all these different transports, web services being one of them. Is that right, a good way right. to say so, that? So I think the, the simplest couple of sentences that sums it up is, and, and maybe people already know this just from having heard about it in the past year, and that is that you decide at the point of deployment whether you want to use a web service type of binding or whether you want to use a, you know, distributed binary protocol for, you know, sharing messages or whether you want it to be async. So if I want MSMQ, I can turn that switch on. If I want, um, you know, TCP or named pipes to keep it on the same machine, I can turn that switch on. And if I want interop, then I can use the one of the two web service bindings, for example, um, meaning basic HTTP binding or WS HTTP binding. And then there's some additional bindings for features like single sign-on and, you know, uh, federated identity that kind of take it to another level. But these are literally just configuration settings, right? Well, exactly. I'm, so so the thing, the whole goal is that when you design a service, okay, you do think about certain semantics, like are these one-way messages or not? That has nothing to do with the protocol I'm going to use, really, mm-hmm. if you think about it. It's more about right. the design. Like, if you upload this file, do you expect a response synchronously, or will I provide you with another way, like through a callback mechanism or something else, like a, a reporting mechanism, to tell you the status of that upload? So that's the semantic of your contract. That's, that's me designing a service and deciding for you how that service is going to function on the server side, right? And based on that, I might be restricted on using certain bindings, because if I do a callback, I have to use a binding that can support callbacks, right? Right. But I shouldn't be bound to the binding when I design my contract. Yeah. Yeah, the contract should come out of the requirements of the system. Right, right. So we should get back to a, a point where we're designing systems you know, by going through the proper steps. You know, I need to do uh, use case diagrams, and then I've got to turn that into call chains, and then I've got to look at, you know, what assemblies and therefore services eventually come out of that. So how do I break the system into these major chunks of functionality? And then looking at those call chains, you're able to really quickly come up with um, an interface for the contract because you're actually able to define, well, what are the inputs and outputs of this message? You know, what payloads come in, what payloads are returning, and that's a whole other decision, which is are there standards around the payloads that I need to follow? So that might be a discussion about contracts. Just can I, if I can go back to something you said before, you said you could use TCP or name pipes. Um, So we're talking, if you really want to, without changing a single line of code, you could drop down from web services to sockets if you wanted wanted that level of speed and power. But, the, but means, the benefit is you don't have to program the sockets, but you get the benefit of their speed and power. Right. So you're leveraging the trans. You're basically selecting for any service. You have to decide on a transport protocol. So yeah. you're, you're choosing name pipes or TCP or HTTP or MSMQ. And based on that, of course, you know, there's going to be some defaults sure. that you can sure. use, like, binary is the default for NamePice or TCP or MSMQ in terms of serialization yeah. or encoding, right? And then yep. it's text-based for the defaults for HTTP. But if you wanted to mix and match that, let's say I wanted to use binary, you know, with HTTP, I mm-hmm. could. I just have to create a custom binding for that. Right, okay. So it kind of goes outside of the typical. I've been thinking more in terms of 
the fact that you make these decisions along the way of development and then find out those decisions are wrong and that you do have to distribute this app wider or it does need to go to a foreign system and the fact that you're with WCF, I'm not going to be punished for that. I'm going right. to be able to turn the knob, change that interface over to a different protocol without having to rewrite it. Great exactly. point. Classic example, I've been to many clients already this year where we've been designing their systems, and many of them have these APIs that need to be accessed by third parties that are going to build new client-side interfaces for their system, and that's another channel for marketing. But behind the scenes, they want optimized hosted environment where they can actually use TCP binary or even named pipes on the same machine until such a time they introduce a DMZ. And once they add that second firewall, maybe they're going to hop over from the web server to the application server using TCP. All that would be is the service saying, I support this other binding as well. And for those application programmers who don't know what DMZs are, demilitarized zone? Right. Meaning that you'd have a firewall, of course, at the entry point of the web server, and then you have another firewall um, between the web server and the applications behind it. So it's just uh, yeah. An added layer of security, which is required by many environments. Yeah. And it takes time to set those things up, and you don't want to hang the programmers right. while you're configuring all and ordering all that equipment. Right. So if you get accustomed to a couple of kinds of hosting, right, I'm either today, because we don't have Longhorn, um, we're either hosting in IIS for the HTTP access, which is sort of a no-brainer for those people already used to ASP.NET hosting, or I'm using a self-hosted environment, which means today I'm either building my own, you know, console or Windows host that is the executable that hosts my services. And that, of course, requires that I've got to have some way to restart it and so forth. Or I can put it in a Windows service that actually means it will be, you know, at least restarted, for example, recycled um, if something were to tear it down when the machine restarts, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or I could go to another level and I could put it in an enterprise service, which might seem kind of strange, but the whole point is if I want some sort of way to host a WCF service that can be unattended and actually, again, recycled and reinstantiated upon an incoming call, then I, I have to use some sort of host. What we really want is the WAS which is the Windows Activation Service, which is coming with Longhorn. Um, of course, there will be uh, available on the client side for Vista, too. What is that? And that is a, basically, it's IIS 7, you know, which will allow us to receive uh, incoming requests, not just HTTP, but also IPC name pipes, uh, TCP, or MSMQ. So wow. there will be a kernel-level, you know, receiver, basically, that will forward requests to the environment, the runtime environment. Wow, that is cool. It is very cool. And what's cool about it is that all those things we get for health monitoring with IIS uh, 6 right now on Windows 2003 server mm -hmm. as an application server, we get that ability for any protocol, which means now my server-side distributed system can be managed through those consoles, right? Oh, my God, in terms that's of huge. application pooling. It's huge. It's huge. And so, so right now I just actually came from a client that's planning a release based on the Longhorn timeframe. And what's really nice about that is that we get to talk about the WAS instead of talking about, you know, how am I going to create my own mini WAS right. that handles? Because that's what people are doing that can't tie to Longhorn is they're looking for ways to create their own little mini activation servers, Right. right. Not that it's hard to do, but 
It's you know, just it's, stuff it's just that, a bunch of code you don't want to own. Exactly. It's you a bunch got of that, stuff. man. Right, right, exactly. So. Absolutely. So uh, you, people hear a lot about service-oriented architecture, and uh, for the last year and a half, it seems that that's been a buzzword. Uh, you've heard uh, it started out like any technology starts out when we hear about it first. You get some really enthusiastic people talking about it, and Clemens came on and talked about it in sort of layman's terms, and and then you get people saying, nah, that sucks, don't do that, you know, and then you get some people saying, well, you know, it's it's far away, farther away, we got to plan for this. So SOA is obviously, a, 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 the, the general concepts of service-oriented architecture are baked into Windows Communication Foundation. What, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that we, if we're going to use WCF, that we can't use this in a, in a typical client server way? Or do we have to embrace SOA in other aspects of our applications? Or are we, is it just going to be so subtle that we don't realize we're using it? So I think it's a combination of those things. If you, if you think about, I think we have to separate SOA, the buzzword, from service-oriented design. Okay. Because SOA, especially, you know, the big term that was the big buzzword in the beginning, is really more at the business level where application to application integration, you know, I've got a payroll system and an accounting ledger system and this and that. Yeah. You know, as a business issue, the CIO is really concerned about SOA, right? And they're looking for ways to have messaging buses between these systems, and they're looking for ways to monitor the messaging between these big systems. But then there's a whole other layer beneath that, which is what about just looking at the payroll system? And within that, I have to design, you know, components that communicate with one another to fulfill the role of the payroll system. And within that, there could be many sub systems, if you will, you know, sets of functionality like how do I access client data, how do I access employee data, how do I, you know, um, enter payroll information. Those are three what you could consider services or if we were doing component-oriented design, those would be major components, right, mm, in the right, system. Right. So we've kind of been heading towards service orientation all along. We started with object orientation with just encapsulation of functionality in a class and reusability, right? And then we move to component-oriented, which means, okay, here's this, you know, binary, which could be a DLL or uh, an assembly in .NET, and I want to reuse at the component layer because then it's all encapsulated and I can give you a file, and it's already compiled. Right. And then we've got that moving into distributed components, right? So now, well, how do I talk to the component across a boundary? So if we're doing mm-hmm. RPC and, you know, using some sort of remoting technology, then we are not passing serialized messages. We're actually referencing objects remotely, like DCOM traditional, right? Yeah. And that's got its value, but it's not really service-oriented because the problem is there's no contract and there's no way to be interoperable. There's no way to change who's the client calling, what platform are they written in, and that kind of thing. Right. So really a service-oriented approach would be that I build a contract in, in front of that set of functionality. And a contract could be just a component layer, truthfully, so enterprise services provided us a way to think service-oriented mm-hmm. and implement service-oriented systems, but it's just not web services. It's right. here's a major chunk of functionality, and here's how you access it. So it's, a, it's service-oriented sort of seems like a way to say, 
web services without necessarily being web services, like the architecture of a web service without necessarily the, the goo of a web service. Right. It's the idea of encapsulating a subset of your system that is isolated, that owns its own data store, that basically is movable. So I can take this whole chunk of functionality and put it on another tier in the system, and I can still access it. Um, and it's not going to disrupt the rest of the system because I moved this chunk over here. Yeah. Um, or possibly even replaced it with another platform vendor because then I should be able to access it interoperably instead. Yeah. So the idea is that it's a self-contained unit of functionality. Just like to remind the listeners right now that uh, .NET Rocks is brought to you by sponsors without whom this show would not be possible. If our sponsors decided not to advertise, we wouldn't have a show. So uh, uh, one of those sponsors is Data Dynamics, and they make a product called ActiveReports.net. If you've been listening to the show for a number of years, you probably know about it. But if you haven't seen it in a while, go check it out at datadynamics.com. Uh, it's a great reporting tool. We love it. We use it. And uh, a lot of the regional directors also swear by it. So datadynamics.com, and tell them thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, the, the other things uh, that we heard about service orientation, and, and it would be good to check in with you and see what you think about this. And it, I, There doesn't seem to be any clear authority on service orientation like there is on, say, object orientation. And maybe I'm wrong about that. But, um, you know, some of the ideas that we had were that we heard about were all the services take, you know, a blob, an XML blob, which is a document which contains history uh, as well as you know uh, current data, but also history of the th the things that the other services have acted upon it, and it just go bounces around from service to service, adding the history and the traceability to it and uh, another thing that we got out of SOA by talking to Clements again was this idea of every service owning its own database, and the things that you would separate out into different tables, now you could actually separate into those into separate databases and each would be separate and then you'd have a central place to bring the data together for reporting purposes, which is right. usually the... So are those still tenants of SOA? Well, yes, but I think an important word you said there with uh, the last statement is could, right? Yes. Could be in a different database right. or could be in the same database. So the database is not really the key to the service orientation. It's the isolation of the tables. Right, right. So that those tables could be moved away. And what I find happens a lot with clients, frankly, is, you know, the system that they have, the existing data structure, even though it's a normalized set of tables, what happens is many of the use cases need to go to many tables. Yeah. And the difficulty there is how do we make this service-oriented without causing services to have to talk to other services just to get one piece of data yeah. out of another store. And that's not always practical from right. a performance perspective. So I think that what you'll find is maybe some database refactoring could fix that, but not everybody has the option to do that. So mm. then what we have to really do is look at it practically and say, look, 
are we looking at SOA here or are we looking at SO, which is you are trying to design a service-oriented system that you can, you know, as best as possible isolate these pieces of functionality. But when we start looking at crossover in terms of touching other data stores, um, what are our options practically? I mean, can you redesign the database and refactor it, or are we stuck with what we have? And if we're stuck hmm. with what we have, do we want to cross process boundary to get at the other right. data? Right. Or do we just aggregate and have reusable data access components that you're allowed to talk to from, other, from more than one service? And it's a violation of the pure service-oriented architecture tenets, but you have to also be practical here and think right. about whether that's going to really cause a problem long-term down the road. I mean, honestly, it's a discussion that we have quite frequently at iDesign with all of us because we all see these situations and we try our best to separate it, but it depends on if the team can do what's necessary to properly normalize. Well, it's like any set of rules, right? You have your mm-hmm. fundamentalists, you right. know, your zealots, right. and you know, who follow the letter of the law, and then right. you have the people in the real world who are like, no, it has to be done tomorrow. And then somewhere in between lies what actually happens. Right. What good is a perfect design if nobody can actually use it because it doesn't work or it takes too long? It's not reasonable to use it. But you mentioned the tenants of SOA. Is there a single authority on on this or was it just the first person to come up with the idea or is there a a agreed on standard for what that means? I think it's generally agreed on, I mean, in terms of what, you know, what uh, we want to achieve, everybody seems to generally agree on that. I think there, there are maybe some variations on how we go about approaching it. For example, yeah. like I said, there's that business tier, which is the CIO level SOA. And then there's the, I'm designing a system, and within that system, I've got services, and I need to, you know, uh, isolate my, my sets of functionality behind the behind the outer application, if you will, that whole application might be a service within an SOA environment. So I guess what I'm getting at is there is no single source of authority on what constitutes SOA or service I don't think there's a single source, no. Okay. There but isn't like a W3, you know, W3C no, standard. No, or exactly. <laughs> no, there is no OASIS and, right. and W3C. No and father of SOA WSI. or mother of SOA. <laughs> not quite not quite yet. I think okay. you'll have a lot of visible people talking about the tenets of SOA, but okay. yeah. So it's yeah. a conversation at this point in time. Yeah, and and I think that it's 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 definitely something that I think in the beginning people were very skeptical or they were, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid right away. Right. And now I think people that were skeptical are starting to see the value in becoming service-oriented, which is leading us to Supporting an SOA infrastructure. Yeah. Okay? Okay. And there's another thing that I hear a lot about, which is just really annoying, and that is, you know, oh, let's put a message bus in the middle of it. Got to have a message bus. Got to have a message bus here. Got to have a message bus there. Got to watch traffic, you know. I mean, bottom line is when you design a system, you have to look at performance, too. And you can't just slap a bunch of services, you know, that are, you know, monitoring traffic without taking a look at benchmarks and seeing if it's practical for your system to do that. Um, When we start looking at, you know, routers and when we start looking at capacity planning and things like that, um, 
you know, when you buy a third-party package that says, I'm just a message router, if you don't build your own, basically, you're, you possibly could have issues with performance. So you have to get a chance to look at that and really benchmark what that impact is to the vertical round trip. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that this is one of the things that WCF addresses so well. Right. That on one level, I can say, hey, give me the ultra compatibility mode. I'll sacrifice performance. And then when I realize that performance is now my issue, I can tweak it, change the protocol, tighten it up, make it less flexible, less tolerant, but faster. Yeah, indeed. So, Michelle, I know you've been working on some best practices around these. Maybe you want to share them? So, I think, well, there's a lot of mini best practices for each part in WCF that we work with, you know, if I'm trying to upload large files, how do I approach that? Or, um, But I think some of the big ones are related to contracts and service design. So if you think about just in general, one of the flexible aspects of WCF and how I always, you know, emphasize building your services is you've got your business layer, right? So you've got these assemblies that represent the manager and engine components and then other sub-assemblies within that. And that's just unrelated to WCF. This is my uh, design for, you know, a set of functionality around clients, a set of functionality around payroll or whatnot, right? And when we decide to put service in front of that in order to distribute the functionality, access it from, you know, remote clients and so forth, then the first thing we look at is designing a contract. And the service contract is really something that generally doesn't belong inside your business logic. I mean, if you think about it, I might want to use that manager component, that API layer, from a non-WCF environment. I might use it behind the scenes, too, and it's not part of a service. It's just me calling it. Um, or I might want to distribute it to more than one service if there was, you know, sort of a reduced service interface for mm. outer callers. Yeah. Whereas behind the scenes, I have a larger API and I might want to separate those services into separate interfaces and host them in a different environment even, right? So if I build my services as separate assemblies from the actual business logic, that would be a one best practice that I always recommend. This, the next thing is that you never couple the service contract to the host. So the place where you define your actual service contract is in its own assembly separate from you know, the actual hosting environment and separate from the business logic. And you never write business logic inside the service code, right? So it's just calling through to the business. And the only thing it should deal with is any sort of custom serialization, deserialization necessary to get to business. What's involved in writing a contract? I mean, you've talked about that a couple times. Yeah, and actually that's another best practice, which is you should always have an interface. So just like we would do with interface-based component programming, Mm -hmm. you build a C-sharp or, or VB.net interface, and that interface has operations in it, right, just like you would expect. And okay. those op- So it doesn't have methods or events, right? It's just operations, just methods. And those methods are decorated with the operation contract, and the actual interface is decorated with the, so it's the operation contract attribute, right? Attribute, yeah. And then, and then the interface is decorated with the service contract attribute, And that attribute defines the namespace, so always put a namespace, right, Mm -hmm. which is usually your company name, your company domain, so like www.indigogirl.com forward slash samples forward slash, you know, some month and year. And that becomes the XML namespace, basically, for, yeah. 
for serializing the service elements inside the body of the message, right? So this is a web service thing, really, but, of course, it relates to non-web services because sure. WCF is now using, you know, WSDL, the web service description language, as the contract for any type of service, even yeah. if it's not web services. Right. So that's good. Um, so if you and have one your, exception into that interface would be the one, one additional thing you might want to put in that interface is that custom serialization element. Hmm. Right, exactly. Right. Not in the interface, but in general, the service contract is owned by an assembly, you know, my service, um, right. and that service might have some custom code in it for handling serialization. And we can talk about contracts, too, in a minute, but I think, you know, in terms of data contracts, but basically the the thrust of the service is the operations, right? So that should be in an interface, and then you implement the interface on a class, and that class becomes the service type, right? right. And so you can, if you want, put all those attributes, service contract attribute, operation contract attribute, on the service class itself directly, but then how do you implement another interface on that service, right? It would be you basically tightly coupled the interface with the implementation, so we're back to, you know, VB class interfaces mm-hmm. from COM. Mm-hmm. And so that's not recommended. Always use right. an interface and then implement the interface. And then you can have more than one interface. So the contract is basically saying this is what you can call. Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's an easier way of defining, you know, what, what WSDL actually does with implementation details. Right, because it turns into WSDL right. when it's generated dynamically um, from the service description at runtime. So there's nice. a runtime object called service description, and that becomes you know serialized into a WSDL contract. It's also accessible cool. dynamically through Metadata Exchange. So I can query information about the service dynamically and say, what's your security policy, and you know do the right thing as a result. So that's interesting, it's too. all the stuff about WSDL that can't be dynamic, can't be generated without some sort of, you know, it's the... It's the what your service is going to expose. Well, yeah. actually, WSDL does have a policy in it, though. So those policies are actually in the WSDL flat document as well. But you may have the need to dynamically negotiate things, which means you need to be able to do what they call metadata exchange. Okay. So that's another standard, WS Metadata Exchange, that's supported by the WCF platform. So even though most people you know, don't even see that this is happening. It's all standards based under the cover. So we should care about that. I mean, even if you don't ever want to look at the XML, that's fine. Um, but it's all standards based. Therefore, all these things we can do, whether it's TCP or net name pipes, we can also do with HTTP interoperably. Yeah, right. You know, what? And- what's really cool about this is that it seems like there's so many things that you can do with WCF. That it'd be cool. You know how they have the Rube Goldberg machine contest, Richard? It'd be yes. great to have like a, a a contest where you have like the coolest thing ever done with WCF. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> do it. One of the things that it struck me about the interface separation is also this ability for an application to go out and find out what it is I'm going to need to provide before actually trying to provide anything, just to get that itinerary that that uh, manifest. Yep. Of all of the things, I'm going to need to support this security model and this kind of encryption, and this is how they want this data type to look, and here is a special way to serialize this kind of data. These right. are all the things I need to know. Now, do I have what it takes to actually do this?
Now that I'm producing all these shows every week, I don't have time to teach my classes anymore. I knew I had to find good trainers to teach, but I didn't take that decision lightly. So I turned to my friend Mark Dunn and the regional directors and MVPs. Mark Dunn introduced me to one of his top VB trainers, Tom Kinzer. Tom did a couple classes for us and we couldn't be happier. He consistently gets all nines on his evals, perfect for teaching the VBNet Masterclass, which is now the Dunn Training VB.net Masterclass. Thanks, Mark. When looking for a teacher for the ASP.net Masterclass, the obvious choice was Miguel Castro. If you've ever seen him speak at Code Camps or on .NET Rocks, you know that nobody goes deeper than Miguel into ASP.net. And he also consistently gets perfect scores on his evals. Every other ASP.NET class he teaches is in either VBNet or C Sharp. So first he'll do one in VBNet, and then the next month it'll be in C Sharp. One very special class we're offering in August is the iDesign WCF Masterclass with Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Michelle and the folks at iDesign are deeply into Windows Communication Foundation, codenamed Indigo. So if you're planning on developing a distributed system at this point, you should be using WCF. Of course, you can check out the course outlines and dates at www.franklins.net. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smart. careful, though, because one thing you said in there was security, and the truth is you can decide on your security policy on deployment. Mm. So I can deploy the same service in two ways. I can say I allow an endpoint to support username and another one for Windows credentials and another one for right. info card. So, yeah. so I have that flexibility. The only thing that's actually tightly coupled to the service itself is if there's any sort of impersonation um, that is required. So the things you hard-code, if you will, into the service, actual contract, is a behavior that should not be decided dynamically. It's part of how the service must always function, as opposed to, you know, things that go in configuration, which is things that the IT deployment should decide, and also allow that to be flexible. Managing the rules around serialization is the same thing. You either understand this or you don't. Right. So if you don't, think, you're going to have a tough time reading the data. So I think where you're going is there's a lot of features. How do I know I'm capable of building a system with WCF? And so I think here's where the problem lies. It's not really a problem. What it is is a rude awakening that, you know, people that were building Azimex, we weren't dealing with all these, you know, nuances of, of you know, interoperability and right. standards. And many people use WSE for the emerging standards, but how many people really get it, right? There's a handful. Yeah, right. And so... I know you're one of them. I actually worked uh, with one of your examples that you developed with Ted Neward around oh. the WS standards. And that was great. It was enlightening to me. Ultimately, I ended up presenting it for people, but drilling into what you guys were working on and how these standards work together and the challenge of the WSE model, bundling them up and what version of what is implemented where. And sometimes oh, you had to get down to the XML. You're talking about the interop uh, 
uh, yeah. storyboard that we did for yeah. Microsoft Canada tour or something. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, since I'm fun. working with Microsoft Canada. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so here's the challenge. The challenge is that, you know, we do need to know how to build a system if we're going to be system programmers, right? And so WCF is easy and it's accessible, but at the end of the day, if I'm going to apply transactions, you know, to a service, it's easy. It's three, there's four things I need to consider, right? You know, whether I flow transactions or not and, you know, whether I require them and I could go on. But the point is, you know, I have to understand why I need to care about transactions in order to do that. Right. So yes. same thing goes with security, which is a much bigger animal altogether. So I need to understand, well, how do I want to authenticate and how do I want to protect messages? And I should really be making those decisions in, in plain English first as part of my design of the system, right? So we have a really simple way we do this with our clients where we go through use cases and then call chains and then we take the call chains and we actually, you know, draw diagrams. It's on our website. It's called the iDesign method, so anybody can read it. Hmm. And it sort of gives you an easy, accessible way to sort of define the boundaries for process boundaries and identity boundaries and where do I authenticate and where do I authorize. And as in the process of doing that, of course, we're talking about how do I authorize, right? Do I need a Windows credential or a username and so forth? or do I need single sign-on, right? You have to make those decisions first, and then you go to the WCF code and say, how do I map this diagram to that set of, you know, configurations? And understanding first what you want is the key to being able to figure out how do I apply that in WCF. I was going to say, yeah, the implementation seems so easy that most of your focus is going to be on I right. imagine it's going to be a big learning curve for developers just in terms of what their options are. Right. So the thing that they're learning is stuff they maybe didn't know before, right. which is how does, you know, negotiation of a security credential work, right, yeah. if we're going to do that? How does, you know, Kerberos tokens, get? how do they get passed? Right. You know, how do we delegate? And once you they know those to... things, then you can make a decision as to which one you want to use, and then right. you're implementing Right. So, so what we're going to be doing is grooming a whole new breed of people that maybe, because they're forced to really design first now, mm-hmm. they're going to be forced to understand these concepts instead of just flipping switches randomly and seeing what comes of it, right? Yeah. So that's a good thing, I think, um, because yeah. you could really get into trouble with enterprise services, right, if sure. you don't know what you're doing. So uh, what are some of the coolest things that you've seen done, or maybe you've done them yourself? with WCF? I actually, so I actually had an opportunity last uh, summer on the Beta 1 bits to implement a part of the InfoCard integration. Yeah. Um, with vendors. So InfoCard is the identity meta system for, you know, the WinFX platform, we right? We just talked so, to Kim Cameron about that on oh, a couple, good. Yeah. couple episodes ago. Right. So, so the idea, so people can go read that, listen to that first. So the idea is that, you know, there can be these, you know, smart cards or, um, you know, USB, uh, you know, thumbprint reading devices that are really mass storage devices, but they also store credentials. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can drop it on the street and nobody has my thumbprint, so they can't get my credentials off of it, mm-hmm. right? But the idea is that I can store, you know, information either that's corporately granted to me by my company by, you know, creating the device from some central provisioning center, or it could be myself just creating custom credentials that I use to go to eBay or go to PayPal or go here or go there. Right. 
And the idea is that I plug that into my computer and OWCF service can just say I want an issued token and that will automatically pop up the InfoCard dialog and allow me to select from my device. So the device integration is something that's still being worked on. So I did a prototype of this last year. But what was cool is that in the process I had to create this web service that was, you know, basically acting like a custom portable security token service. So a security token service is is simply put a web service that is able to issue tokens, right? Yep. And that's a single sign-on functionality that we get for free with the WS uh, Federation HTTP binding. But if you want it to go to a third-party STS or security token service, you can implement these interfaces in web services called WS Trust. And WS Trust is just a simple interface, actually, with four operations. And you can get the spec right from the OASIS uh, website, right? And uh, I think it's WSSX is the uh, actual new name for it. And that specification I implemented for the portable security token device so that I could simulate being a third-party, you know, uh, pluggable device, basically. And I thought that the elegance of being able to implement this interface, taking it from a spec, you know, right. and actually receive and generate a SAML token in a couple of lines of code because we've got SAML tokens integrated was really, really fun and very cool. So what it means, though, for the for the person who is just using their computer is they have their credentials on a card, they walk up, they either wave it in front of a device or plop it into a USB port or whatever they do, mm-hmm. and then the, the computer knows who they are, and that authentication token follows them throughout the transaction right. and authorizes you know, right. the transaction based on their hard you know, token. So the key is the issuer, which is the security token service, has to sign the actual token so yeah. that the service that's relying on it, the relying party can be sure that it came from a trusted source. So actually the device has a mini token issuer on there and is able to generate keys and sign those tokens, which is why you can trust them. It's not like I just invented, oh, here's my credential. Somebody created that card for me. And it's not like some static data that's just there and you like a password and you check the password. It's actually generating a token. Exactly. That's very cool. It's very cool stuff. I'm actually giving a talk on InfoCard at TechEd, so... Wow. That'll be that'll be fun. That'll be good for the Rube Goldberg uh, convention, you know. The Rube Goldberg. Yeah, the sort of the uh, <laughs> cool things you can do at WCF convention. Right. You right. see some like thirteen-year-old nerds in there, just you know, with all sorts of devices and cards and stuff like this, right. propeller head hats and whatever. Yep. So it's it's pretty cool stuff. Actually, I guess another cool thing is in contracts. You know, you can take any non. Data, so data contracts is how we're supposed to, you know, try to build our service descriptions, right, in terms of, you know, the payload that gets passed in the message. Yeah. Data contracts are an easier way than in the past with XML serialization. So we opt in any particular member of a class to say this could be serialized or not. Right. And we decide the order it's serialized and so forth. So we use the data member attribute and the data contract attribute. And this is an object-first approach. So you've probably heard the whole ruckus about contract-first versus object-first, right? No, actually. Okay, so there's, Tell us about there's, it. there's a lot of really strong opinions out there and um, about the whole idea that we need to do contract-first development for our 
our contract is designed for web services, and, of course, that now applies to everything in WCF, right? And what that means is, you know, if I want to design a payload, so a message that gets transferred in a SOAP envelope, I should start with a schema. And okay. I should go to an XML spy or some other equivalent tool, and I should design my schema. And that schema becomes what is going to look, what is the message going to look like? And I can take that and map it to objects. When I receive the payload, I turn that into business entities, right? It doesn't seem very practical from a developer point of view, though. So here is the biggest problem with that, okay? The problem is we have no tools that allow me to look at a schema and drag and drop and do a, some sort of object you know, element mapping to my actual business entities over right. on the right side. Right. And, you know, even if I could do that, Carl and Richard, you know, the thing that we don't have is what if that schema is two pages long? I mean, I've seen insurance ba- uh, schemas, you know, for the insurance industry when I was part of building a, uh, such a message for forms where it's such a hierarchical thing. Yeah. There's just no way to really easily map that. You need to receive the stream and you need to say, look, I will map it to my business objects myself as I read through it in an optimized way, skipping the stuff I don't care about. Hmm. Just because there's so many possibilities in that contract, and they've yeah. got to cover them all in the contract, even though you're only going to use a tiny subset of them. Right. Hmm. So, so simply put, I think there's really two schools that are actually perfectly acceptable. So there's a myth that it's not interoperable if you don't do contract first. If I don't start with a schema... I'm going to be not interoperable. And this is actually a damn lie, because here's the thing. You could use all kinds of fancy schema constructs, like substitution and things like that, Mm. that don't actually, they aren't interoperable Mm -hmm. from schema, because there there are XML engines that don't know how to process that in the Java space and elsewhere, or in Microsoft even. So we behave differently. So the simpler your schema, the better, in terms of the types of constructs you use. So how do you get it any simpler than saying, look, why don't I start with a data contract and design my business types, mark them with data contract, just like in the past I used to mark them with serializable Mm -hmm. so that they can be passed around and therefore they can automatically be serialized and deserialized. So that works in the case where you don't have a standard you have to follow in your industry and where you're actually responsible for creating whatever this standard is, what does a customer look like, or what right. does this look like. And that's okay to do that. It's still going to be interoperable. And what you should do is make sure your naming conventions look good in the resulting schema. So take a look mm. at the you know, output from the WSDL document and take a good critical look at the XSD that came out of that and decide if that's acceptable, right? So I think that, uh, you know, that one approach, starting with data contract, is perfectly acceptable if you don't have a standard you have to follow. But yeah. if your industry already has a standard, you know, in law enforcement and medical and banking, there's oh all kinds God. of additional, you know, pre-created standards for certain types of elements in the industry that we might share between partners. It's like the, the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's probably 800, you know, pages long, and that's just for one spec, Right. Right. (laughs) And I've seen it. You know, I worked in the insurance space for for many years, and and we had 800-page specs from Accord, you know, for all the policy documentation. That was just P&C. Forget about other types of insurance. So so you, if you have an industry standard, you need to get involved in that, and you need to take that. And that means you are being given a schema. So at that point, you're not going to map that to a data contract. Forget it. 
what you're going to do is you're going to implement some sort of IXML serializable object. I have a sample for this on my book site, actually. Cool. And, um, and you're going to receive the stream in the raw, and you're going to optimize taking the stream and turning that into your business objects because that's the only way to go. So those are like the two simplest ways to look at, you know, designing the contract for the message payload. Hey, Michelle, when you teach your class here in, uh, mm-hmm. in August, mm-hmm. what, what can students expect to be doing? Um, you know, it's a week Everything. long. What, give us a sort of a mini outline of, of what you're going to talk about. Just a quick overview. Well, so from top to bottom, right, we're going to start with just how to, you know, what is WCF top to bottom, give a complete overview of bindings and behaviors and so forth. And then we'll get into, you know, data contracts and designing services. And then we'll get into the different bindings. And then we'll start talking about the deeper functionality like, you know, how do I apply transactions? How do I apply reliable messaging? How do I apply all of the vast number of security elements and, you know, reduce that to a repeatable declarative way? So we have a lot of tools at iDesign that Mm -hmm. many of us develop. You know, Yuval, of course, has been doing this also for over a year, and he's got tons of material, too, and, and, and he's... You know, between all of us, I mean, we've just got a lot of knowledge there that we've put together. And yeah. the classes will cover from top to bottom best practices because we can pu- draw from our experiences having worked with clients for so long. Are you talking about any of those underlying technologies like Kerberos and those things that uh, that people may or may not know about? Well, so enough to where you understand how to apply it, right? Yeah, that's so good. So you've got to look at it from a scenario perspective. So you're not going to teach somebody how does Windows security work from the beginning. Sure. But you certainly can talk about the scenario where it applies, right? If I'm right. within a network environment in Trenet and, and this is how I would prefer to design my system, then this is the type of configurations you need. And it'll give you some templates to work with. So, Michelle, yeah. you know that uh, at the end of our shows, we usually ask our guests, you know, what have you seen online lately that's really cool? But I'm, I'm not going to ask you that. Instead, uh, with you, we have another tradition where you, where you, give, us a, <laughs> I knew it. Where you give us a joke. <laughs> I might have more than one for you right now. but You're a great I'm joke so- teller, and uh, <laughs> you said before that you used to be a bartender, so you've heard them all, right? <laughs> I've heard them all. I, hear, I, I, I like jokes. Jokes are fun. It keeps jokes it are light. Great. Keeps it light. Okay, I'll, I'll Let's just tell, tell the punchlines, though. I shouldn't even be f***ing you right now. Yeah. That was, <laughs> so if they want to know the whole joke about that, they've got to go back to which episode? <laughs> right. I think that was your second second. My second episode? Yeah, I wasn't holding back there, was I? No. That was a great joke, though. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh at my own jokes. Is that bad? <laughs> okay, I've got a joke for you. I'll All tell right. you a joke. So Mr. Bear and Mr. Rabbit. Didn't really like each other very much, right? And one day while walking through the woods, they came across this golden frog. Have you heard it before? No. Okay, good. So they're amazed when the golden frog starts talking to them, right? The golden frog admits that he doesn't often meet anyone, but when he does, he usually gives them six wishes. Since there was two of them, he told them they could each have three wishes. Mm -hmm. And so Mr. Bear immediately wished that all the other bears in the forest were females. And so the frog (laughs) granted his wish. And Mr. Rabbit sort of sits there and thinks for a while, and he says, I wish for a crash helmet. So one appears immediately, he places it on his head, and Mr. Bear is just completely amazed at Mr. Rabbit's wish, but he carries on with his second wish. And so he wishes that all the bears in the neighboring forests were female as well, and the frog grants his wish. So Mr. <laughs> Rabbit then wishes for a motorcycle, and it appears before him, and he climbs on, and he starts revving the engine, 
And Mr. Bear couldn't believe it. He complains that Mr. Rabbit is, you know, wasting the two wishes that he could have had for himself, you know? Right. So shaking his head, Mr. Bear makes his final wish that all of the bears in the world were females, leaving him the only male bear in the world. And the frog replies uh, that it had been done, and they were both turned, they both turned to, um, you know, Mr. Rabbit for his last wish, and uh, Mr. Rabbit revs his engine, and he thinks for a second, and then he says, I wish that Mr. Bear was gay, and he rode off as fast as he could. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but i got a better tasteless one if you like <laughs> please i got a better probably more appropriate to what you're used to from me okay <laughs> great <laughs> okay so so uh naomi campbell claudia schiffer cindy crawford are all flying to a supermodels conference in paris <laughs> When the captain of the plane announces, we've just lost power and the engines are going to make an emergency crash landing, mm. um, uh, assume brace position immediately, right? Yeah. So immediately the three models start preparing for the worst. Claudia Schiffer pulls out her lipstick and makeup and starts fixing her face. Mm. Bewildered, Naomi and Cindy basically ask, what the hell are you fixing your makeup when we're about to friggin' crash? <laughs> and Claudia... <laughs> Claudia responds, I know for a fact the rescue workers will search for and save first the ones that have the best-looking faces, which is why I'm putting on my makeup. <laughs> okay, so Cindy Crawford rips open her, bla her blouse to expose these big mounds of flesh, which <laughs> defy the laws of gravity, right? <laughs> you, know what, you know what Cindy Crawford looks like, right? So totally yeah. confused, Naomi and Claudia shout, Cindy, have you lost your senses? Why are you bearing your breasts for everyone to see when we're about to die? <laughs> so Cindy responds, I have it on good authority in a plane crash that the rescue workers look to save the first, the women with the big, beautiful breasts. So that's why I'm exposing my tits. <laughs> <laughs> so, so not even hesitating, Naomi Campbell pulls down her skirt and panties to expose her love triangle and freaking out, <laughs> Claudia, Claudia and Cindy yell, Naomi, are you crazy? Why are you exposing your crotch for everyone to see? And calmly, Naomi responds, bitches, please. I know for a fact the first thing the rescue workers look for in a plane crash is a black box. <laughs> 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 oh man! And on that note, <laughs> we're going to see you in the Netherlands. Uh, you're going to see me in the Netherlands. Are you going to you're going to join us on uh, on stage for Mondays down there? I will. I will. Why not? Yeah. Why not? And you got so, plenty of jokes. When do you arrive? <laughs> I'm arriving the 13th, the 13th Saturday night. Okay. I arrive Sunday afternoon, but um, I'm going to the Speaker Day this year. I oh, forgot. Good. Last year I was kind of busy, so I didn't get there. Good. All right. Well, so, we'll see you there. Going? It'll be Are fun. Are you guys going for that? Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be there. Going. Good. Good, yep. good. Okay, that's awesome. So, um, excellent. Yeah, so any final words before we uh, flip the switch? I should, I should probably give you some resources, maybe. That would be a good uh, idea. WCF. Um, there's one website that's sort of becoming the central place where we can post code samples um, you know, all those various industry leaders that are focusing on WCF, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so windowscommunication.net okay. is that site. So you probably want to 
we can make a note of that, I suppose, in the list afterwards. Yeah, we'll put those links. Just we'll put the links on the website. So. Right, and then of course I design. We have a bunch of downloads already up there too that yep. are you know related to the classes and stuff. And uh, of course, there's my book. So yeah. the book that never ended. It's uh, we're finally closing in on a close to finished, uh, hopefully RC that I can baseline the book on. So I'll start posting awesome. more. My website's been a bit dormant for the last few months because I've had a lot of conferences and busyness. Is your book so, uh, available from the iDesign site? No, actually, so I have a blog, as you know, Das Blonde. Das Blonde. And um, I created a blog just for the book where I could put my chapters and also receive feedback from people. Oh, great. And, and basically where I can put any um, you know, notes after the book's published as well. So it's going to be you know, central to that. It's called thatindigogirl.com. And basically, right now, I've got four chapters up there. It's got all the code. Um, some of them were based on earlier releases, as you can imagine. So, you know, I, I can't say when I'll update those, but I am going to start posting new chapters that are based on the post-February CTP very soon. Great. So people can go there and start reading and give me feedback. That would be awesome. Yeah. So the book will stay up on that website until such a point as we're, you know, close to finish to go to production. And then at that point, I'll probably be asked to take down that. But there will be a place online at O'Reilly that I think you can subscribe to after that. So you won't be, you know, completely left without it. You'll just have to probably order a copy of the book, which maybe I can sign if you bring it to the next conference I'm at. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Okay. Michelle, thanks for sharing your wisdom with the, uh, with the .NET community. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Love talking to you guys. All right. We'll see you in the Netherlands. And, listener, we'll talk to you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a time boy, life is hard,